Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the rise of the voices independence at the upcoming federal election, and we're also going to look a little bit at the seat of Casey in Victoria. My first guest today is Narelle Merigliotta. Uh, Narelle is a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Monash University. Hello, Narelle. Hello. And I'm also joined by Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a senior lecturer and chair of the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Ben. Hi, Narelle. The big change at this federal election has been the rise of a movement of independent candidates, often known as Voices Independence. These candidates are following the model used by independent MPs Cathy McGowan and Zali Stegall when they defeated Liberal MPs in the seats of Indi and Warringah in 2013 and 2019, respectively. In both seats, a local group using the word Voices in its name was formed and then sought out an independent to challenge the controversial sitting MP. There are now voices groups all over the country running dozens of candidates. While their policy agendas are not identical, they are typically focused on Liberal seats and feature a focus on climate change policy and the treatment of women in the Liberal Party. There has been a surge in the number of women running as independents in particular, many of them running with the endorsement of a voices group, while others don't have a group behind them but are stylistically similar in terms of how they're running. While many of them don't have much of a chance of victory, independent campaigns look threatening in the Liberal seats of North Sydney, Wentworth, Goldstein, Kuyong and Curtin. Stuart, do you think this surge of independence has changed how the Liberal Party is approaching this election? I think it definitely has. Um, It's not merely a case of they could win. Um, It's a case of the Liberal Party has to redirect its its campaigning um, funds, its strengths, uh, the senior members of the parliament, um, that it has, particularly Josh Frydenberg. So they're all having to campaign in their own seats when they would normally be moving around the country, um, attaching themselves to other campaigns, trying to boost the variety of campaigns. This time round, they're required to be in their, their own electorates to do a certain amount of work in their own electorates, appear, you know, do, do the classic appearances that uh, uh, meet the candidates and the like, because they can't take their seat for granted anymore. It's worth noting that the seats that they've targeted are held by what might otherwise be considered um, wets or the uh, moderates, particularly when you look at seats like um, Wentworth uh, and North City. So they're attacking, if you like, seats that could well swing, not a seat that could be taken by, say, the Greens or by Labor, but both Wentworth and North Sydney have had independent members previously. So they could well fall. Curtin itself also covers an area that for a long time had an independent Liberal uh, in the seat of state seat of Churchlands. So again, a seat that could fall to, if you like, a, uh, a, a teal or you know, light blue candidate who's not um, from you know, the opposition, uh, the, the people who you wouldn't bring yourself to vote for, but is from someone who looks similar. Uh, many respects is respected. You know? So you have candidates like um, Zoe Daniels, Monique Ryan running, um, who are respected as broadcasters, as people who have been around the world, who know what they're doing. Uh, interestingly, they're being funded by Climate 200, which also means that they have considerable financial backing behind them as well. Uh, Simon Holmes Court is, you know, if you like, a, a, a sign of a, uh, a great industrialist in Western Australia. Uh, so he has certain amount of cash to splash. He has a certain amount of smarts and wherewithal, business acumen. Um, he's been very active over the last few years, particularly on all social media around um, climate change. So this being very much climate change treatment of women 
um, has actually, I think, will work quite well in these electorates. It's not just a diversion of resources in terms of money or or personnel. It's also a diversion of like policy resources, right? Like you have so much budgetary money that you can spend. You have so many different directions you can go in in terms of what policies you announce. And when you have this sudden other group of seats that have care about very different things to the typical outer suburban marginal, that must change as well. I mean, maybe the government's not really doing this. I'm not really sure. But I would think if they were smart, they would also be thinking about how much they balance out what policy announcements they make and like think of that as a resource too. If we have a look at the debate last night on Sky News. Now, I, I did watch it. Um, it wasn't the greatest of debates that I've ever seen, but it was really telling the questions that were being asked. Uh, so you did have questions about the NDIS. You had questions about uh, treatment of women. You had questions about climate change and about how do you move industry uh, away from coal, etc. How do you build EVs? How do you do all this sort of thing? So there was a really interesting set of questions coming through that were not being clearly argued by Scott Morris. He tended to simply move to talking about how wonderful the economy was, falling back on the existing policies that they've already announced and not actually changing them at all. Uh, He is still pitching, as it were, to the outer metropolitan areas. Now, they're one set of seats. Note we haven't seen these teal independents appearing in those seats. It's a very concerted and targeted campaign um, towards particular Liberal Party seats. There are other independents who are um, campaigning in those outer metropolitan seats, as they have done, and they'll campaign as well in National Party-held seats. Interestingly on that, um, we see the seat of Richmond, which has a Green now being endorsed by an upper house Liberal. Um, these sorts of odd sort of things starting to happen. I'm not sure that the current government, the Morrison government, kind of has the flexibility, like whether they actually do have the ability to position themselves in a way to see off this threat, because I feel like they've really positioned themselves very much to the right, and that's part of why these seats have become more difficult for them. Do you think they have the flexibility to move? The government might not, but those members of parliament do. So the Liberal candidates... They, they appear to be saying all the right things. They seem to reflect a, a, a not too dissimilar agenda to some of the kind of line items that are really important to these community voice, the community of voices candidates. So I actually think that there's the ability for the party to hold the line in those seats because Liberal Party candidates are capable of speaking a very similar type of language as some of these independents. Um, But you're right, it does present a bit of an existential challenge for the Liberal Party, right, because they've got, you know, various forces working within the party, pushing and pulling in various types of directions. But I suppose if there's been one bright spot for for some of these kind of Liberal candidates, people kind of recontesting their seats, is that they've been kind of really forced to kind of speak to a more moderate agenda which I think is kind of helpful um, for them in terms of their ability to reposition themselves. And I think that the party seems to be giving them some flexibility or the government seems to be giving them some flexibility to do that. On last week's episode, we talked about Labor and the Greens and we talked about the dynamic of how much policy change is about having people on the inside or pushing from the outside and pressure. And I think that's a real question that we're seeing tested right now with this, right? Because if a bunch of these people get knocked off, probably it does mean the Liberals aren't in power anymore. 
But in what direction does that change the Liberal Party? Like, do they do they address the fact that they've just lost a bunch of seats for being t- too far to the right and moderate, or do they now reflect the fact that um, their their caucus, their party room, will be more right wing and move further to the right? You know, which way does that go? And that that'll be a really interesting question. That may not happen, but if the independents kind of achieve their maximal result that um, will be worth watching. I agree with you up to a certain point. I actually think the Liberal Party uh, at a state level will continue to look to how they can um, repair any damage done at the federal level. So the Voices candidates may win, but at the state level, they will still attempt to control, certainly moderates will still attempt to control branches just without those MPs on the basis that they can potentially win them back in the future. But it does mean that the, the federal party um, will likely um, reflect far more the views of Scott Morrison, Barnaby Joyce, and, and a number of others uh, from what might otherwise be called the right of the party. And we see this in the in the selection of Catherine Deves in um, Warringa to challenge Zali Stegall. Uh, she's not there to win necessarily. That seat will, is, I suspect, written off for the Liberal Party this time around. But it's very clearly a signal um, that the party wants to move to pick up and maintain the Pentecostal um, vote uh, on one side. Now, that's a, a very interesting development. They're now pitching themselves to particular groups. It's kind of what you know we've seen in US politics for, for years, but it hasn't really been, to my mind, such a feature. In the past, there have also been parties that are prepared to actually campaign on that and there'd be preference deals and the like or preference negotiations. But here we're seeing, you know, major party, the major conservative party, pitching itself to what is sometimes considered to be, you know, extreme social conservatism, um, not necessarily economically so, but certainly on social values. So in that sense, it's also a social, it's also a values campaign on the part of um, the, the Liberal Party. Although this didn't come through in the so much in the debate, I was, I'm quite interested in what did come through. The focus on the economy, you know, Liberal Party's normal strength was there to the almost to the exclusion of anything else. To what extent are we anticipating that some of these two independents are really likely to win their seat? Um, and I, I kind of think it doesn't, to some extent, matter whether they do or not. I think the fact that they've kind of thrown down the challenge is really important. And I, and I kind of think it's not a bad thing for a party to have to properly wrestle with the competing factions within its party and work out how it's going to speak to all segments of um, its kind of voter base. I mean, because reality is with political parties, they are broad churches and they've got to find ways of managing some of those tensions rather than allowing certain of those factions to dominate it at particular points in time. And I think to some extent this kind of tension we're seeing is maybe quite cathartic. It doesn't necessarily have to be destructive to the party if they can find a way to balance these competing forces. Look, I don't think that, that all of these independents are going to win. You know, I, I listed five electorates before. Uh, I think if one or two of them won, that would be a pretty good result for them. Um I think it does depend on generally where the government is. Like if the government was on track for a real landslide loss, I think you could see the losses add up in these seats. But no, I think probably what will happen is maybe one or two lose and a couple of others get a bit of a scare. Some of them turn out to be a bit of a flop and don't really go anywhere. But yeah, I I think it's probably a good thing for them to be grappling with this part of their base and how they they talk to them. On that, I mean, I I do think that 
a number of them have a good chance. We only have to think back to 2007 and the campaign in Bennelong. Um, no one thought that the Prime Minister would necessarily lose his seat. Uh, yes, there was a bit of a <clears throat> bit of a swing on, as it were, to Labor. Uh, and, you know, um, what's that old adage about, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. I wonder here if the pitch from... You know the homes of court plum at two hundred, isn't the is the right pitch for these particular seats? What limited polling we've seen says that you know Curtin, Kuyong, um, Goldstein may all be in play. Um, North Sydney we know and Wentworth as well we know could be in play because they have they have been independent before. Yes, they've been relatively conservative independents, but they've had them. Maybe they'll win. Maybe they won't. I think, as Narelle said, it's important that the that the Liberal Party is shaken up by at least having to deal with these particular um, issues internally within the party. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that the Liberal Party is going to be capable of dealing with that. Uh, I think the Federal Party is going to continue to drag it in a particular direction. We saw that under Tony Abbott. I mean, he may have lost his seat, but there's plenty of people who are prepared to you know, be flag wavers for you know Tony Abbott. Uh, I've seen posts from you know Liberal Party members that I know saying, you know, the best Prime Minister we didn't deserve. And it's like, well, okay, so Tony Abbott still has his cheerleaders. I wonder if Scott Morrison won't still have his cheerleaders uh, within sections of the party and they continue to push. Whether they win then becomes immaterial unless, unless Labor Party starts to see the wheels fall off later in the campaign and they then are struggling themselves to form a majority, then it does become important whether the independents are won or not. Yeah, well, I was going to bring up the way that they do or would behave in Parliament because, you know, they are being supported by climate-focused fundraising, um, but they are not, they're not necessarily of the left. I think most of them wouldn't identify as being of the left. Uh, they are in a peculiar position because they need a big chunk of Labor and Greens votes to be competitive, but they also need some Conservatives to get them over the line. And so there is a lot of Labor and Greens voters in seats where they never really have a chance voting for them to get them into a competitive position. You know, in the same way, even people like Tony Windsor or Rob Oakshop, even though they're in more conservative rural seats, a lot of their voter base would have been people who would have voted for the Labor Party before they they were around, and they just they peeled off a few extra nats that they needed to win, or you know at least in the first place. So there is an interesting thing there about how they get to being elected and who are who are the people who vote for them, because ultimately, like they will represent conservative electorates, and they will the swing voters will be conservative, but a big chunk of their voter base will not be conservative; they'll be progressive. In Parliament, um, there is a real question about that, how they behave. There's been speculation about whether they might do, you know, it's, it's the 100th anniversary of the 1922 election, which resulted in the country party get them, getting the balance of power. And they said to the nationalists, we'll support you in government, but we won't support Billy Hughes. And the nationalists changed their leader, got a new leader, got a new prime minister. Um, whether such a thing could happen today, I think both major parties would be extremely jealous of their rights to choose their own leader and would possibly choose to go into opposition rather than accepting that that threat. Um, but that would be an interesting position to be in. They clearly are not fans of Scott Morrison, but I'm not sure who else in the government would appeal to them more. 
Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not sure that any of them have so far said that that would be one of the conditions of their support for, a, for a, you know, any Conservative government or Liberal government. So I'm not sure that that's probably going to be an issue necessarily um, in play. But it's an interesting idea, though, Ben. You might have just given some people a very good idea about ways of kind of um, responding to being in Parliament. But my suspicion is because of the seats they're kind of contesting and the kind of broader segments of the population that have probably been responsible for voting them into office, they're probably not likely to be pushing their weight around to, to that extent. I think it will be a, a kind of a more policy-driven uh, response on their part um, in terms of how they respond to a government. Um, and I think the tendency so far has been for some of them to indicate that it's more likely than not that they would be willing to support a conservative government if they had, um, you know, more more kind of bums on seats than than the Labor Party, for example. I mean, that's what I'd expect as well. Um, that they would tend to lean towards um, the conservative parties. If the Conservative parties had enough seats, that is, if they had shown that they were, you know, competitive for government. If they weren't, then, you know, why would you want to even think about supporting them? Um, because, I mean, the crossbench itself could be expanded. We don't know what will happen. I mean, it's fairly clear that the, the Greens will win Melbourne, but they, will they win Griffith or Brisbane? Well, they're unlikely, but <clears throat> not outside the realms of possibilities. Are there, you know, country independents that we're not really seeing or hearing about that are doing particularly well? Um, there are always those little flavours of what might happen, um, you know, the, the, the odd seat here and there. Um, so this is where I'm, I'm sort of left going, okay, there's a possibility that there could be something close to, um, I hate using the word hung parliament, but certainly where um, Labor might win, um, might win the, the most seats but they haven't won a majority. Or, you know, you have the Liberal Party trailing them. Would this be, you know, similar to the, if you like, the last election in 2016, where it's very close between the two of them? Or will it be like 2010, uh, when you have a, a, a clear block that is able to say to one side or the other, uh, we want these policy outcomes and we will sign a fixed agreement on these particular policy issues, uh, which could be offered to both sides on the understanding, you know, these policies are required for supply and confidence. And that's kind of what I expect. That's, that's the bargaining chip that they actually have. So both major parties have said they won't negotiate with independents. I don't believe that. I, I think they will. But I do think it does reflect that they are not comfortable they don't want to open that space up. I think if you're Labor, your attitude is we we don't think we need to negotiate with the Greens, at least for government, and we don't think it helps us to do that, and we want to be seen as independent from them. If for the Liberal Party, I think it's more that they don't they don't want the voters and those electorates to think, you know, I'll vote for Allegra Spender in Wentworth, and I'll get a she'll she'll help support a Conservative government too, but a better government, you know, like they would want people there to be worried about that resulting in Labor coming into power. So I think it is partly a self-interest about wanting to hold back that tide. Um, but I do think they will negotiate, but I do think it does also mean they would not want to... Um, they'd want to limit the scope of what they would be negotiating over. But it is true what you said, Stuart, that sure, there's a hung parliament, but unless there's a big block, unified block, probably that... Um, 
you know, we'll be in a situation where one major party is like one or two seats short and the other one might be five or six or eight seats short. And so there really isn't any choice. The details can be negotiated over, but really only one party or the other can can govern. How much do we think this movement is like a political party? Because I don't think it is the same, but um, Norelia smiling. I'm interested in your, like, what's the assessment of how how much they are because sometimes they remind me of like the greens of the 1980s or something they're not a party but maybe they are dozens of parties you know Narelle? look i definitely don't think they're a party i think they're definitely a movement at this stage what they develop um into is anybody's guess but i i'm not even anticipating that they're going to develop into anything other than what they presently are and i think what they presently are is a really interesting proposition for the electorate the idea that you have a a kind of a, a more, um, I don't want to, I'm going to use all the wrong language here and it's going to sound awfully um, patronising, but a more professional looking independent movement that's kind of properly bedded in its electorate that has a bit of support behind it that allows that allows them to select some really interesting um, independent candidates who they can then support in gaining election people who might not otherwise come to anyone's attention, people who might otherwise struggle to gain access to resources. So I think we should hope that it stays as it is, Um, not because I'm opposed to there being any new political parties forming. Wonderful, more political parties, the better as far as I'm concerned, but I kind of like the notion of this movement and what it represents. So this kind of movement, the reason I find it particularly interesting is that it it seems to be running on what appears to be some fairly national issues and underpinning that are some local ones. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You kind of get independents that that kind of reflect kind of constituent concerns or the concerns of their particular electorate, but they still have some view to an, a more national agenda on a range of issues. I think that's a, just an interesting phenomenon. Are they a party? They're not a party. Um, they don't have centralised membership lists. They might be more professional, but they don't act you know, like a party. Yes, there's a couple of threads that that hold them together. Simon Holmes, the court, might be saying, all right, you've got to support you know, climate change action. And that's relatively easy. Uh, that is relatively easy for you know even sections of the Liberal Party. Uh, we have to remember that Malcolm Turnbull was happy to negotiate on climate. <clears throat> so there is certainly you know a, a constituency, if you like, for them. Will they become a party? No. Uh, the, the premise of independence is, has always been I'm independent. It's a very hard thing to shift from that to I'm just going to be one of a number. Um, I can work with other people, but yeah, you know, actually becoming a party, then you'd have to have a party leader and you get into all sorts of, uh, dare I say, difficulties around that question. Uh, you mentioned the Greens in the 80s. Well, the Greens in the 80s was a whole bunch of different parties, but they were held together by a single thread of policy. Um, and even then, you know, the policies were all over the place, but it was a set of ideas that they were able to hold them together. They slowly turned themselves into a very cohesive party, still with tendencies, as every party does have. We've seen that, obviously, in the major parties. Uh, but they're centralised, professionalised, bureaucratised. I can't see independents buying into that. Uh, unless, of course, they have a, you know, a yen to join one of the major parties, in which case that's what they'll do. Otherwise, they'll stay independent. We'll see perhaps a movement of independence. It's not a bad thing, so long as they learn how to work together. Uh, we've seen it happen in both federal and state politics in the past. So, you know, highly likely that, you know, 
if they get in, they could stay in for a period of time. Uh, and from that, influence the way that governments negotiate with crossbenchers or with each other. I mostly agree with all of that. And they are definitely not a political party. And I don't think there's anything right now that's going to push them to be a political party. One of the things I find really interesting is the way that these groups get set up, that they, you know, I think traditionally an independent, yes, no one is really ever running entirely on their own. They always have supporters and movements, but it's always been very much a someone announces that they're running and then they assemble people around them. And where you have local independent machines, the Clovermore Party or whatever. They've never been particularly democratic. They are institutions that are very top-down. Um, whereas you have these groups that have pre-selections. You know, they choose candidates. And that at that point, after that point, they maybe they change in their nature. And I do think anyone who um, gets elected and is a particularly strong one at that point will have a strong incentive to defend their independence and will look a bit more in, like an independent. But I do find it interesting how Kathy McGowan, in particular in Indi, kind of managed her succession, you know, found someone else. The group kind of re-emerged as an institution. So I, I think that stuff is interesting. I don't think there's much of an incentive to expand those groups beyond a single electorate. Like, I think if they look at all like a party, they look like a party within one single electorate that just exists for the purpose of that electorate and for helping choose and support a candidate, which is more than what a typical independent campaign committee does, which doesn't have a role in choosing the, the candidate. The candidate's kind of already presented to them. That's the thing I find interesting about it. I think, you know, if a bunch of them got elected, if five of them got elected or something, it would be interesting to see how they behave in parliament. But, you know, in this day and age, we do see blocks of people who are able to cooperate together without necessarily having an incentive to then go out and do extra parliamentary party organizing right like there's independents who work together in the state parliaments like you said Stuart um so yeah I don't think they are a party and I, I wanted to address it because it does come up sometimes um but they are different to how most other independents have been run in the past they are more organized and they are more institutionalized it is possible they may caucus together um, in Parliament, so I, I don't, I don't think that necessarily goes against the brand necessarily. Um, it's, it's a good idea if if you're all independents to kind of be working or speaking to one another on a fairly regular basis. And I think the sharing of resources also makes sense because contesting elections is really expensive. So you may see some things that look like they're reminiscent of the types of things a party might do, but as Stuart's pointed out. Some of the more kind of uh, institutional, organisational elements of a political party don't exist um, in relation to these movements. And, I, yeah, so I just think it would be kind of destructive to the brand if they were to try to formalise this beyond uh, what it presently looks like. A good analogy is actually uh, uh, student movements. Student movements have often, um, you know, been quite spontaneous, have arisen out of, you know, people's desire to do something. We've seen this with the, the school strike for climate. Um, if you try and organise it, it tends to fall apart because it loses a spontaneous element. And I've seen that time and time and time again with student movements. You actually have to maintain the movement as a spontaneous body. Uh, and that means, you know, the issue's got to be salient. Uh, for the independence of these still independence, the issues have to be salient as an independent, you know, so am I going to be a good independent that people can come and approach and feel like th they own me, uh, as opposed to, you know, yes, we know what we're getting from the Liberal Party, we know what we're getting from the Labor Party, um, and not be overly organised. Once you're overly organised, you're a party opposing. 
right? So I think they actually will try and keep that independence um, going. I'm really fascinated by the ones who are running in places where I don't think the model really works and they they do look different. Like there, there, there aren't just these five seats. There's independence running in Calaire and Cowper and Page and maybe not all of them technically have a voices group, but they, they're kind of running the same niche. And it is interesting that it seems to have inspired a lot of other people to run. And, uh, you know, those are the people for whom having a bit more like a party support structure could be more handy to them, but I don't think it's coming anytime soon. And it will be interesting to see how those people perform because there could be a lot of them who get 5 8 10% of registers in the national party totals and maybe it makes a difference to some preference counts. Uh, it's not just about a, this handful of seats. I don't think any of those people are going to win, but... Um, yeah. I think if there's been one strength of these voices of movements is the kind of candidates they've been pre they've kind of selected to kind of run for those seats. I mean, they've been really careful at matching um, the candidate to the seat, I think, in ways that I think political parties sometimes really struggle to do. And I think that the, these movements can quite kind of genuinely say they've selected people that are of that constituency. They've not kind of put brought them in at the last minute or, you know, shuffled people around. So I think there's something to be said about these movements. If, if they're capable of kind of selecting the quality of candidates that they are pre presently, then this is a really good sign of things to potentially come. Um, now, Dad's, I, I'm very aware of the fact that just because people appear to be great on paper and they can do a great job of speaking in public, it doesn't necessarily always follow they'll make great parliamentarians. But Based on what we have to work on at the moment, I think we're looking at some really formidable candidates. And I and I think also um, the other point, and I think Stuart raised this at the beginning of our discussion, um, or maybe it was you, Ben, I can't remember. Um, but, you know, these Community of Voices um, campaigns are really good at selecting quality female candidates as well, something which the major parties have um not always been so good at doing. I mean, they've obviously selected some excellent female candidates, but they've they've not they've been pretty kind of scant with the numbers that they're prepared to throw their support behind. Each week during this election, we're doing a seat of the week as part of the podcast. This week, we'll be discussing the seat of Casey on the eastern fringe of Melbourne. Casey covers the Yarra Ranges council area, including small towns, but also urban growth on the eastern edge of Melbourne. Tony Smith has held Casey since 2001, but he's retiring this year after retiring from the speakership last year. Smith holds Casey by a 4.6% margin. The Liberal Party has held the seat for the last 38 years, but it could be in play in 2022 with a retiring member. In addition to Labor, there is a local Voices of Casey group supporting an independent. Narelle, do you think the Liberal Party could be vulnerable in Casey? Yes, I think I think any seat where the party is operating, any party is operating on such a small margin, I think there's the possibility of the party losing that seat. So, but the, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag with Casey as it's going to be with any of these kind of marginal seats. So, as you pointed out, there's a really strong, interesting voices of Casey candidate running, um, which has the capacity to attract um, support. You have the Labor and the Greens running the same candidates as they run in 2019, which I think um, is also very useful from both those parties' perspectives because those candidates already have some visibility within the electorate. And collectively, Labor and the Greens poll something like 40% of the primary vote. So that's a pretty good basis for 
particularly potentially for labour to, to maybe benefit here in this particular instance. As you pointed out, Ben, this is a, an open seat to the extent that the incumbent has stepped aside and whatever um, personal incumbency advantage Smith had has kind of evaporated in this particular instance. I think there are things here that do present something of a challenge for the Liberal Party and for the Liberal candidate that's hoping to win this seat. But I suppose on the other side of the ledger, um, this is a seat that has consistently seemed to prefer a Liberal candidate. Um, and uh, so there's that going for it. The, the, the electorate is strong tending in terms of Liberal Party. And when you looked at the, the, the flow of preferences to, to some of the minor parties and independents outside of the Greens and Labor, when you look at the flows of the preferences, they tend to kind of find their way back to the Liberal Party candidate. You have a, a UAP and a One Nation Party candidate contesting the seat this time around and that their supporters have typically preferenced the Liberal Party where they stand. So they've kind of got the advantage potentially of some, some other kind of um, parties sitting in, contesting this election that are likely to preference them, um, even if they draw some support away from the Liberal Party candidate. And I think also, too, that there's an expectation that the swing away from the Liberals will be much more muted in Victoria than it's going to be in some of the other states. So that swing could be anywhere between 2 to 5%. It's not kind of clear because it's still fairly early days. So I think there are things which would tend to suggest that um, the seat is definitely vulnerable, but there are some things, as I said, on the other side of the ledger which may actually help the Liberal Party to retain that seat. Um, I know that the United Australia Party, they've obviously indicated they're not going to preference the major parties, they're going to preference everybody else ahead of the major parties, but they haven't necessarily specified at this stage how they're going to order the, the, um, their preferences between the two parties. So that could also be interesting. So, if, for example, if, if United Australia chooses to preference Labor ahead of the Liberals, then, you know, it also becomes a little bit more interesting as well. So if you kind of take the fact of the swing, the, lo the loss of that personal incumbency advantage, um, the fact that you have a pretty strong independent candidate running, um, you know, it's going to be, I think it's going to be really interesting in terms of, what happens in that seat? Liberal Party, for well, since the major redistribution a number of years ago, the Liberal Party's already ha always had a very high primary vote, and it's really a question of how how will that fall, or will it fall at all? Um, you know, that does if it if it drops if it drops to say forty three or forty four, then I think the seat's in play. If it stays where it is, then you know it's going to be held onto. But it has to fall. If that primary vote's still there, and that's again where you've got Claire Miles, the Voices candidate. If she is successful in pulling some of the votes away, former CEO of um, Sustainability Victoria, then there might be something. And she's focused on disaster preparedness. That's an issue that's that all outer um, <laughs> outer major cities face these days. Get too close to a forest, and you'll get you get your fingers burnt. Um, so. My biggest worry for this seat is that it's going to stay the same. It's been sitting on the, the, the fairly safe margin for you know, a decade more. So I don't actually see it moving that much. The injection of the Voices candidate could make a difference. 
But I think Narelle's right. What you, United Australia or One Nation do with their preferences are going to be quite important, um, particularly if they have the people to staff booths. Now, I'm not necessarily sure they will, and so where will the One Nation United Australia voters go? I mean, if we to if we're to believe you know the the advertising, particularly from United Australia, they'll all be you know just Liberal voters who'll go home to the Liberals at some point, but they might deviate via other candidates. So it could get you know moderately interesting. You're right. It will come down to the leakage of those preferences. So if the if um, Claire Miles does reasonably well, you would still anticipate that most of her supporters' preferences are likely to come back to the coalition, but it, it's, this, it's the leakage that will matter here, I think. So, I, I mean, I looked last time around, the independent, the, the kind of leading independent in the seat in 2019, a very small primary vote, but, you know, this is not necessarily entirely comparable. But if you looked at um, where their preferences went, the majority of them did fall back to the, the Liberal candidate, to, to Tony Smith. But that still kind of leaves 40% of those, those preferences. So... It's, it's going to be in the leakage that I think it's going to make most of the difference because I think it's probably safe to assume most of the support for Claire Miles is likely to kind of fall back or return in some form to the Liberals, I would think. So I think that's where it's going to be tricky. But if enough of it leaks, right, just enough of it leaks, and if, if Labor and the Greens are able to hold their vote um, and, you know, they're able to pull that support, obviously not in any kind of formal sense, but just because of the way that preferences flow, um, then I do think it's going to be a really interesting proposition. I suspect it will come down to the wire with that seat, though. Um, I think it will be really tight, and it might be one of those seats where you have to wait a few days to know exactly who's actually won um, or secured the seat. And the other thing, too, that's interesting about this seat, if you look back in 2019, it had a really high number of informal votes, so much higher than the Victorian average at the federal election. So it and I hadn't haven't had a chance to look at what was necessarily the cause for the high levels of informality. Um, it, if it's it may have been just numbering errors that people were making, but if it was a protest vote of some description, and some of those people are more engaged by the candidates that are running this time around, that's also interesting. That puts a, another six point five percent of the vote back into play. There was a lot of candidates running last time, uh, 10 candidates. That's right. Yeah, totally. Okay, so Casey, that is a seat I'm definitely going to be watching, uh, worth paying attention to, and we're going to wrap up now. Um, so that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Stuart and Narelle, for joining me. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks, Ben. Fun. And thanks, Narelle. Thank you both. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.